0: Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a new companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Ray Vada, and I'm hosting this week's episode. Every other week on You Can't Make This Up, we feature a new interviewer discussing a different Netflix series or film with their special guests. And all of the stories are surprisingly true. Even this week's show, which is truly unbelievable. That's right, we're talking about Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist. And here to tell us what it's all about is Matt Beliscik. Matt is a comedian, author, and host of the podcast Unhappy Hour. Before we get into his interview with the show's executive producer and co director, Trey Bolazari, and writer and co director, Barbara Schroeder, we wanted to get a quick rundown of how Matt felt watching the series. Matt will be joined by his producer, Barry Finkel. Remember, there are spoilers ahead. All right, take it away, Matt.
1: All right. My producer, Barry Finkel, and I watched all four parts of Evil Genius on Netflix, and we are going to attempt to summarize it now. Are you ready, Barry? Oh, I'm ready, Matt. All right. We open on Erie, Pennsylvania, which is named after the lake and also the Native American tribe and not the word meaning uncanny or abnormal, even though that would be appropriate because this story is weird as fuck. So, a pizza delivery man named Brian Wells leaves Mamma Mia Pizzeria to deliver two pizzas. An hour later, he walks into a bank with this really cool steampunk rifle shaped like a cane, and it would be totally badass if this wasn't a real-life bank robbery and also if he didn't have an actual bomb strapped to his neck, not a fake bomb, a real one. To make it even weirder, he's carrying a bunch of meticulously written instructions for how to rob the bank of $250,000 along with details of a scavenger hunt that would lead to the keys that would unlock the bomb around his neck. Sounds like a fun time. He gets away with $8,000, but police quickly apprehend him, except they don't really know what to do with him, and they wait too long, and then in full view of the police and a bunch of gathered news cameras, the bomb explodes and kills him. Now police are baffled, because surely nobody would strap a live bomb to their own neck, but if he didn't do it, who was involved, and why?
2: Why? Why?
1: Three days later, a second pizza delivery man, Robert Panetti, is found dead in his home after an apparent overdose.
0: Honestly, forgot about that.
1: He's never connected to the crime, but he'd been acting weird since the murder, so people think some funny business is going on. Then, a month later, a dude named Bill Rothstein calls the police to say some funny business has indeed been going on. Bill tells the police there's a dead guy, James Roden, in his freezer, in his garage. Bill says his ex-girlfriend, Marjorie D.L. Armstrong, is the one who killed James Roden, the guy in the freezer, and Bill helped clean up the scene and put the body in the freezer. Now Bill says he wants police involved because he's scared of Marjorie. But what does this have to do with the bank robbery? What? Well, seemingly nothing, except Bill Rothstein in a note he wrote before attempting suicide said FYI none of this is about the bank robbery, which leads investigators to be like, "Okay, but like why did you even bring up the bank robbery?" Also, surprise surprise, Bill Rothstein and Marjorie live right down the street from where Brian Wells was supposed to deliver his pizzas. Coincidence? Maybe. But allegedly, no. So, investigators grant Bill Rothstein immunity in exchange for his testimony against Marjorie. And then Marjorie is sentenced to 7 to 20 years in prison for the murder of James Roden, the guy in the freezer. But eventually, Marjorie starts telling the truth, her version of the truth, about the bank robbery. She says she helped supply materials for the bomb, but it was Bill Rothstein who was the mastermind of the whole shebang. Bill Rothstein eventually dies of cancer, but maintains until the end that it was Marjorie who was the evil genius behind it all. Oh, a title tie-in. Whoa. Then there's a dude named Ken Barnes, a.k.a. Cocaine Ken. Someone turns him in after he reveals details of the crime, that Marjorie wanted Ken to kill her dad so she could inherit all of his money. The bank robbery was just to get enough money to pay for the hit job because hit jobs aren't free. Hence, a motive. Marjorie and Ken are eventually charged for the crimes, with Bill Rothstein and Brian Wells indicted as conspirators, Ken pleads guilty, Marjorie doesn't, and she's eventually convicted. But the question remains, was Brian Wells, who was basically publicly executed, actually part of the conspiracy, or just a pizza delivery man at the wrong place at the wrong time? That's when we meet Jessica Hoopsick, a.k.a. Number One White Girl. That's how she signs off on her text messages. And how I will be from now on. She's a drug addict and a prostitute whose clients include Cocaine Ken and Brian Wells. Jessica admits to the documentarians that she introduced the group of conspirators to Brian as someone that they could easily manipulate into doing their dirty work. Exonerating Brian Wells, but implicating herself. So, Brian Wells is innocent, Ken Barnes is still in prison, Marjorie died in prison, Bill Rothstein is still dead, and Jessica had a baby that might have been fathered by Brian Wells, the pizza delivery man himself? Basically, this shit is cray. Cray cray. And I need a drink.
0: Amen. What a journey we all just went on. And now, let's dive even deeper into the show with the people who made it. Barbara and Trey, now join Matt to talk about making the series.
1: After watching all four episodes of Evil Genius, I have so many questions. And thankfully, I have the geniuses behind the docuseries here with me. We have writer and director Barbara Schroeder and executive producer and co-director Trey Borzoleri, whose voice you'll recognize from the series. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank
3: you. Thanks for having us.
1: So let's start from the beginning. We'll start with Trey. What were you doing sort of before you saw this story when it all started in 2003?
2: I was in New York City um, working a variety of jobs, working in entertainment and also working in financial services, you know, living what one could call sort of the uh, starving artist existence. And uh, in college, I went to the University of Miami, the student theater on campus called Cosford Cinema. Uh, was playing a documentary called Paradise Lost, which was the the first of the West Memphis Three case documentaries. And I was just utterly blown away by it. So it was really the motivating factor, you know, for me trying to do a documentary and make one that could have such a participatory journey for the, for the audience and an experience like that.
1: Mm-hmm. What was the sort of thing about this particular story that made you think, this is the one that I want to like get up, go to Pennsylvania, start kind of learning as much as I can about it.
2: Yeah. So you know, I, I was um, I was in Buffalo, New York that day. Uh, I had been there for a while. My mother had passed away, and I was uh, collecting her things. And that the, that night, um, the last night, actually, you know, having finished gathering together all of her stuff and uh, putting it into storage, I, um, I I heard on the news they. they came across this story and it was just captivating because it was being reported that this bank robber had gone in and used a live device and and then exploded in the process of, of robbing the bank and for me it was just so compelling it was like oh my god here's this man he was so desperate that he actually used a live bomb and died in the process and that was just so captivating to me. And then a few days later, information started to trickle out about the crime and that actually at the scene, there was evidence that supported the notion that he was put up to do this. So the story started growing from there. And a month later, we learn about the frozen body in the, in the freezer at Rothstein's house, which is located directly next to... The dirt road where Brian Wells made his last delivery, and you know my jaw just dropped. Yeah, you know, it was just oh my god. And I'm a big fan of horror movies and uh, thrillers, and Seven was one of my favorite movies. And just hearing about that that dirt road. It just—it was shocking, and I I knew that this was a special story.
1: And then we sort of skip ahead ten years, and Barbara becomes a part of the investigation. Barbara, how did you get
3: involved? Yeah, Trey had been working diligently on gathering, you know, just this treasure trove of evidence and information, and he—he was overwhelmed. So he had seen a, a film that I did before this tall, hot blonde that involved another case of um, a big, had a big twist involved in it and had interesting characters in it. And he brought it to me and we started working together. But what was so interesting when he brought it to me, I said, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that case, you know, whatever happened. And he started telling me the story. And I think for the next two hours, I just was slack jawed and listening to what he was saying, because you'd heard that people were in prison because of this. But what was left over was that this was an FBI major case that was technically closed. They had a couple people in prison. But from what Trey was telling me, it was unsolved. And he said, you know, they don't know for sure who the mastermind was. And then I started having these what I call wait what moments like, wait, what? They don't know who for sure who the mastermind was. They don't know for sure who wrote the notes. And there was the big overarching question, which was all about the pizza guy's innocence, like was he in on it or not? And it just was mind-boggling to me that these questions had not been answered. So we kind of joined forces, and I'm a seasoned investigative journalist, and Trey was like the citizen journalist, and he impressed me more than a lot of colleagues that I've worked with. So it was a really great journey to go down that path together and try and get the answers to those questions that needed to be answered, not just for you know the sake of curiosity, but also for the town of Erie and for Brian Wells' family. I mean, they had some big questions that had not um, been answered for them.
1: Yeah. The story is sort of 15 years old now. Trey, you've been following it since day one. Barbara, now it's been five years, I guess, that you've been a part of it. What made you finally say this story is sort of complete enough that we're ready to make this documentary? You know, why, why release it now?
3: Well, I have a funny backstory to that. When Trey first brought the story to me, I'm like, oh, we can get this done in a year, year and a half. And then... <laughs> It took – like as every time we would open up a door and get some information and Trey had these great relationships. That's like one of the tenets of good journalism. He had relationships with people that he built. And when he would open up a door, there would be another re- revelation and we'd have to go down another path. So we just – the story just kind of took on a life of its own, the investigation.
2: Yeah, and, and it just – you know, it took really 10 years to get your hands around the story. And, it, you know, because it went cold, there was, there was always something on the horizon. And then even after Marjorie's uh, federal trial, there were many more questions uh, than answers. So it wasn't really until, you know, these breakthroughs that you see in the, in, in the film, you know, especially with Jessica, you know, that didn't come till much later. And once you have that, you know, once you, you reach Jessica and, and her, her story – it's you. You can look back and and see the whole case in a new light.
1: Yeah, I, to me, one of the most consequential kind of moments is Jessica's confession. So we learn from her that you know Brian Wells not only was he innocent, but that she was sort of the one that brought him into the fold. I'm curious to know, like, what goes through your head when you are about to get this confession from her? Like, what is that like to kind of go through that moment when you have this key? integral part of the story that is about to be just given to you?
2: Well, you know, you have to – it was a long time coming. And so, it, you know, the case is what brought us to her. And so, you know, to step back, um, you know, when when the indictments came, uh, the federal indictments on Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Kenneth Barnes – there was a search warrant that was unsealed at that time, and that was a search warrant of Ken Barnes. And deep within those pages revealed Jessica, and that was the first time that the public found out about her. And in reading that, I had a hunch that she had more information. And so it took a very long time to make that hunch turn into something tangible. And, you know, tangible is obviously what you see in the film.
1: Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I was curious about was whether you talked to Brian's family after Jessica's confession and whether they had any you know, reaction to basically him sort of being let off the hook.
3: Yeah. I, I actually called him. I talked to one of the sisters and one of the brothers and uh, Brian's mother is still alive. And we wanted to include them in the documentary. The doors were always open to them. But I think they were suffering from media fatigue and they were so you know all these years they've been saying Brian's innocent and nobody's been listening to them and so they never fully cooperated with us but when I talked to his sister I said look we've got some compelling information from from Jessica and I actually played a little clip of the confession over the phone to her and she got very quiet and was very still and I said please tell your mother that we have this information and we'd love to talk to you and get your reaction and she still wouldn't didn't want to engage i i'm not sure if she was shocked to hear that or if she was worried that it would be somebody else trying to you know another reporter trying to just get their emotions as opposed to really moving the story forward we'd love to know if they saw it and what they think
1: one of the things that struck me was for how crafty they were i still can't wrap my head around what the end game was for the robbery like i, I can't imagine that this robbery would have gone off well.
3: (laughs) Like, there's no world in which that would have worked. Yeah, it doesn't seem rational, and it doesn't seem like they really did it for the money, you know? And who believes that a bank has $250,000 in cash laying around? I mean, they didn't do their homework on that one if they were thinking they were going to get that. So it's as crazy as the people who are involved in it. You know, they're all very intricate, convoluted uh, people. And that reflects in this case that they pulled off, yeah, and
1: I liked I think there was another interview where I saw you both talking about kind of the fact that for as smart as they thought that they were, they really weren't there I mean they they weren't as as smart as they actually thought they were. They liked to think that they were the smartest people in the room, but there were these kind of
3: fundamental flaws in their plan. Yeah, you brought up one of my, our favorite quotes where Bill Rothstein, you know, sits in the state troopers' barracks and says, "Hey, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I want to tell you that right off the bat." I mean, what an opening salvo that is to the whole case! Like, that must have been, you know, pretty insulting to the uh, to the investigators.
1: <laughs> I, that that is also one of my favorite lines. It's just so uh, immediately condescending and <laughs> amazing.
3: And because we're so interested in hearing people's reactions, how did you? How did Marjorie resonate with you? What was her? What did you think of her when you first met her? Was she off-putting? Was she intriguing? Um, that is, I could I could talk about her for probably longer than the entire
1: series. <laughs> I, I'm so. I mean, I'm also just fascinated by characters like her to begin with, and she I, she just really delivered, just for how kind of erratic her thoughts are, for how smart you could tell that she is. You know, one of the things I was interested in was that she seemed to find some solace in talking to you, Trey, but also kind of seemed constantly aware that you were probably telling an unforgiving story about her. How did you kind of walk the line between having compassion for her, but, but staying objective?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, from the start, I was basically horrified by her you know it was just it was a fine line it was you know when you when you talk to somebody that long it's easy to sort of dwell in a safe place and you know and that was what we did and and because you know in essence she's a narcissist it was never hard to get her to talk she was just always talking but what became challenging was to try to channel her towards the subject that i wanted to get into it was like she had such a seek and destroy mentality you know, it was, she was always trying to manipulate, you know, her agenda in everyone she faced. I mean, even when we would sit together in the prisons when I would visit her, you know, it was like she was constantly scanning the room, trying to figure out how she would best dwell in this place, you know, whether it was tackling the vending machine where she would want, you know, everything you can imagine to, to snack on, candy bars, potato chips, pizza, chicken parm sandwiches, you know, just, you know, more, 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 um, she was the most unique person I'll, I'll probably ever encounter.
3: Well, and it was interesting to watch Trey's relationship with her. And just as an aside, I actually I wrote a few letters to Marjorie, and she was like a buzzsaw when she wrote back. And I thought, I'm, I'm not, I'm not communicating with her anymore. That can be Trey's area because it was really it was intimidating, and she was, you know, powerful and give me this, and I'll give you that, but you have to give me this. And, and I realized in watching how Trey so expertly navigated her. Um, and then also seeing the other relationships that Marjorie had with men. I mean the, there's this theory in, in the world of mental health where people that are sociopaths and, and um, narcissists like Marjorie that they look for and search out they – want they, they, can, they really click and connect with empaths. Empathetic people. Trey's a very empathetic person, very easy to talk to. So she kind of gets her claws into people like that, and just to watch her and to hear her when she starts to manipulate in the way she, if she doesn't like what you're saying, like at one point you, you probably heard it in the series where she says, "Trey, I'll sue your effing balls off," and it's like, <laughs> whoa! I mean, it's one. Th- just say, don't do it. You know, it's like it's a, it goes to such extremes. So it's fascinating to watch that narcissist sociopath feeding on or trying to get the empath and almost sucking the life out of them and it's interesting a lot of people that see this say to us hey i kind of know somebody like that in my life who you know i'm nice to them and they just they constantly want my attention and want to convince me of things and want things from me and it's interesting that people find shades of marjorie in in real life
1: Yeah. I I wonder, was there any point where you were afraid of Marjorie? Like, were you afraid of what she might do to you? You know, when she makes that threat,
2: did it feel real? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, she what it's funny you mentioned real. You know, she part of her agenda was being real. You know, she said it numerous times. She always put her best real person out there. Even when she knew there were times where whatever, you know, if she said something, it it could be detrimental to her. She was so impulsive that that didn't matter. And she in her history, she has a a track record of doing impulsive things that uh, in, in the end brought her harm. But, you know, going back to the beginning with her, when I started communicating with her, she hadn't been ruled publicly as a suspect in the case. And I was very apprehensive not only because of her but also because I had a feeling that there were other people involved in the case, other co-conspirators that were not learned of yet in the investigation. So it did it did cross my mind that, you know, if I did carry on with her and she felt like I was getting too close or, you know, that she was perhaps a phone call or a letter away from another co-conspirator on the outside that the investigation didn't know about yet. And that concerned me greatly. Yeah, it concerned me because, you know, I didn't know maybe she would send somebody after me. You know, later I interviewed some other former actually cellmates of her and people that actually lived in the, in the same cell with Marjorie. And um, one person in, in in particular shared that Marjorie was calling up ideas of, you know, could she execute hits on people outside of prison? And, you know, when I learned that later, I was like, wow, when, you know, in the beginning when I had that sort of feeling – you know, it, it, it proved to be true.
3: We, we were also very cognizant of the fact that we were dealing with a woman who was deemed mentally ill. So there was this fine line because you don't want to, you know, we didn't want to like miss, I don't know what the right term is here, like misuse that or misrepresent that. But the way that she would – she would even use her mental illness to try and seduce us. She would say things like, I know I'm mentally ill, but I need this, and I'm not street smart. I know I'm bipolar. So the level of manipulation that she could reach where she would use her own mental illness to try to manipulate people and to lure them in, you know, watching her try to do that with Trey and other people and watching him withstand that was great because he finally was able to – Take the confidence they had gotten from Marjorie and really confront her towards the end of their relationship, which was something he didn't do for years. He just – he was very steady and he waited for the right time and the right moment and then he went for the truth. And I hope you agree that he was able to get something that nobody else had been able to get.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I keep going back to just yeah how how unsettling of a person she was. I mean, even before I saw in the final, because I I had no idea that she is not alive anymore. And when we were watching it, I was like, oh god, I'm even afraid to ask questions about her. <laughs> what, what happens if she listens to this podcast and then thinks I asked the wrong question and finds me? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. The fact that you got um you know got to ask her some of those tough questions in the end is, is amazing. Yeah, and,
2: and there was this, uh, you know, this other fear factor, w- you know, with her was her belief in voodoo and uh, which she referred to as psychic karma of the universe. And, you know, that was a whole other bag of, of, of tricks for her. And, and And she believed that she could unleash this voodoo on whoever she wanted and you know was convinced you see her you know a great clip in the documentary you know she was convinced that she had a lot of success in bringing death to people on the outside.
3: Yeah, she put a put the voodoo on the psychic karma on Bill Rothstein. and whether that whether or not that that might have been revisionist history that after she died she wanted to take credit for it because she was a, a credit taker. There was a great line it was in um the Pop Sugar article, um, Britton Parker, I think, was the reporter. She had a great phrase for Marjorie. She called it revoltingly magnetic. I think that really captures, yeah. yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's a great way to put it. You know, at her federal trial, you know, there was when the jury went into deliberation, there was this moment, and it was like, oh, my God, can you imagine if, if she gets acquitted again? you know and for me i was like oh my gosh uh, i think if that happened the the sun and and moon would re- reverse positions yeah I,
1: one of the other elements that you know sets the whole series apart is the fact that you know the central villain is a woman and even you know Jessica, as as a central character, is a, a woman, and we don't often get to see women in true crime stories kind of behaving as the villain. Did it change the way you approach the story in any way?
3: Well, it's it what it's what made me far more interested in doing the story because that was yet another unusual aspect of the series was that there was a you know potential female mastermind, and. There was one moment where I, in going through all of Marjorie's, you know, letters and audio with Trey and her history, where I actually felt sorry for her, and that was the moment when she's twenty-three years old she's smart, she's successful, and she takes herself to see a therapist because she doesn't understand what's going on in her mind. She knows something's wrong. And she can't, she says the reason she goes to see a therapist is because she can't find gratifying satisfaction in relationships. So that is a very human moment. And I did have a lot of empathy for her because that was the beginning of the decline of Marjorie Dill Armstrong. And yeah, she was high strung before that and, you know, energetic and, you know, a whirlwind. But imagine that you know in your 20s that something's wrong with you and you can't get help and nobody's helping you and your parents are just saying, oh, you're going to be fine. Here's some more money. Go buy something. And that that must have been a wrenching, a gut-wrenching moment for her and maybe the last moment that she was in total touch with reality because that's when the, the decline started. Did she change your mind uh, about anything when you were talking with her?
1: Was there any point where, you know, there was something that You thought about her that she managed to convince you otherwise? It's a good
2: question. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. um, She was of the opinion that Robert Panetti was not involved. And she stuck to that. And so, you know, going into my relationship with her – I was the, under the impression, like everyone else, that you know it, it was being implied in the investigation that Robert Panetti was connected to the case.
3: That was the second pizza delivery man who was found dead. Yeah,
2: and you know Marjorie shed light on that the whole way through that she did not believe that he was involved.
3: Yeah, and that that was another manipulative device that Marjorie employs. I call it like a truthful liar, where there's a tiny bit of truth in the middle of all the lies, and then she. You know, tries to stand on that, hey, I'm telling you the truth about Robert Panetti or her level of involvement uh, in the heist. And she tries to, you know, move you off of your position by throwing a truth bomb at you and trying to get you to ignore the fact that, you know, she's so guilty.
2: And, and, and her reaction and, and her, you know, her the journey with her about Jessica was there from the start. You know, she was always concerned about Jessica. You know, in in some of my first phone calls with her, she— brought up Jessica out of the blue. You know, so Jessica was always in the back of her mind. And and for me, you know, now looking back at it in hindsight, that was really strengthens, I think, the, the credibility of, of Jessica.
3: Yeah, she was playing offense. She was trying to find, you know, trying to see at what point that would pop its head up and be, a, be an issue for her.
2: Yeah, and that's a great point. You know, that was a huge unveiling. You know, in the relationship with Marjorie, you could see how— Far ahead she was trying to, to get, you know, in, in front of the case, in front of the information that was released, in front of the news coverage, everything. She was always trying to be so many beats ahead of, of the story. That was fascinating.
1: Trey, you sort of talked about how some of your friends and family kind of worried about how how much you were communicating with her and whether you were getting in a little too deep. Did you ever worry about that yourself? Did you think like, oh, I, I, maybe I need to take a step back and take a breath?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you, you go—I went into this project with such blind faith, and, you know— it, early on, it was clear that it was really tough to get any information. And so, you know, reaching out to, to Marjorie was, was just that, you know, it was, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And, you know, I was trying to get information and she was one of the only people that I could identify within the case who was alive. And, and so, you know, I had never communicated with anyone in prison. I had never been to a prison. You know, these were all firsts. And family, friends, and family wondering, you know, what what are you doing? Why are you communicating with this person? And then everyone learned that that she had killed multiple people, and it was just bizarre. And it took a, a lot of sort of what would you say uh, intestinal fortitude um, to keep it going. And I, it was it was exhausting. But I just hoped that eventually it would pay off.
3: Yeah, there were there were many times when we would sit down. discuss the case and Trey had just gotten off the phone with Marjorie for you know talking as long as she could keep him on the phone and he just looked exhausted and like he'd run 50 miles and then 10 minutes later Marjorie would call again and Trey would pick up the phone just because he always thought like maybe she's going to say something so your fortitude was amazing. Yeah I can't even imagine I mean I I feel
1: like I had to take a walk after I watched it (laughs) (laughs) and that was only you know four hours worth not 15 years worth so more power to you <laughs> yeah
2: it's it's you know it's all dark subject matter and you know I, I, I would go into Erie and be filming and doing interviews for a few days and probably after about three or four days you know you just were like oh my god i need a break from from this you know the material is so dark um it can be so deter- um disturbing and you know it was it was a heck of a journey well, speaking of the darkness, I think one of the more
1: jarring images is the bomb detonating around Brian Wells' neck. I wonder if there was what the discussion was like around how to kind of use yeah. that footage.
3: Yeah, we, we knew from day one that we didn't ever want to show the entire explosion, which, you know, it, it lives online in, you know, dark places. And we and we had a, a shout-out to our editor, Alex Calieros, because he was so— Pivotal and helping shape this story and, and the nuance. I mean, we went over that opening segment where you you really don't see the full explosion, but we went over that frame by frame by frame, and we tested it, and we showed it to people, like, at what point is it too much? And if we wanted—we don't show it—I um, mean, it's jarring in the opening sequence in the first 10 minutes, but if you look carefully, you it, we cut away the minute that you see the first flash, So, you know, very well edited because it's effective and it makes you realize in an instant the horror and, the you know, just the wrenching death that this poor soul had to go through. But when we use it again at the end, we never wanted to use it gratuitously. But we do use it again at the end, albeit blurred, because we wanted to reinforce one of the biggest takeaways from this series, which is, How is it possible that someone was so, as Trey always says, publicly executed? This soul was publicly executed and no one was ever charged with his murder. And I defy anybody to look at that last shot and and say nobody should have been charged with murder. Because it's just unconscionable that you know that Somebody got away with murder. Yeah, there were a couple of co-conspirators put in prison for armed robbery, you know, armed robbery with a device, conspiracy. But that's pretty shocking. Well, having
1: told it now, besides being entertained and informed by by the series, what is sort of the one takeaway that you hope people walk away with?
3: Well, I mean, we we, we didn't bring up uh, one of the co-conspirators very much here, um, Floyd Stockton, who was Bill Rothstein's roommate. The guy who was accused of, right. of molesting a, an underage uh, girl who was disabled. I mean, here, here's the guy who put the collar on Brian Wells and got full immunity and was never charged. So that's kind of a, an interesting takeaway. The fact that we we would still love to know who who really did write those notes and who was the who started it. Was it Marjorie Bill who first said, "Here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to do it"? And so these remaining questions. The takeaway is. We still would love to get answers to those. We answered a few questions that remained, and this case just keeps giving. If you're somebody who wants to dig into a case, um, dig into this one, because we would love to pursue and find out. You know, Erie, I think the city of Erie would like to know the answers to these questions, and the family of Brian Wells deserves a lot of answers because what they went through is just beyond what any family should ever have to go through to see someone they love die like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we hope that that this could spawn deeper questions. You know, if if the investigation, you know, missed, in essence, the 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 information that that Jessica provides, you know, if if they were wrong about um, Brian Wells's culpability, then what else could they have been wrong about? And Floyd Stockton's immunity? What was that based on? Was that based on, you know, lies? Or was it based on truth? And it would be great to, you know, take a deeper dive into those questions and and see what can be revealed. You know, in, in, in a way, it is a second chance at, at justice.
1: Well, I, I wonder, before I let you go, what happens next then? do you? How do you kind of follow up on the story now that the, the series is out?
3: Well, it's interesting. Every other case that I've worked on, you kind of do it. You kind of tell the story and then you move on. Mm-hmm. I'm still so intrigued by this case and I I think the same thing for Trey. It's like this, it, it won't let you go because there's still that that search for, you know, for truth. So, um, you know, we'd be, we'd be happy to do more. I'd, it'd be great to, you know, show some deeper dives into these characters because they're such unique characters and one of my favorite documentaries growing up was Grey Gardens and Marjorie Deal Armstrong is Big Edie and Little Edie all rolled into one with a, you know, a dash of crazy and evil. So, it it would be you know nice to maybe do some deeper dives and and see what people are interested in that have watched this like what are what do you want to know because we we have a lot of information we probably could have done ten episodes but
2: yeah and and yeah. one thing that'll help is you know and a big thank you to all the 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 relationships that um, I was able to to, to form early on. Um, you know that helped make this happen. Uh, you, you see, um, you know, law enforcement participating in the documentary. Um, many of those interviews are exclusive and, and first-time interviews. Uh, we couldn't thank those gentlemen enough for participating and, and and including you know many attorneys that were involved in the case. Thankfully, those relationships are great, and it's enabling us to you know if we're lucky enough to have the opportunity to 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 do more.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for, one, for making the crazy show <laughs> to begin with and, um, and for being on this show. Awesome.
3: It was great to talk
1: to you. Thank you so much.
0: That was Matt Belisai with Barbara Schroeder and Trey Balazari. And now let's hear from you. It's time for a dramatic reading of your most dramatic social media reactions to Evil Genius. This one is from at Ali I'm only 20 minutes into Evil Genius and I've lost track of how many times I've said, what the
2: fuck? At JLuke428 says I had Bill Rothstein as a substitute teacher for three months in high school. I was not surprised that there was a body in his freezer. Hashtag Evil Genius.
0: This tweet is from at Stacey Miguel. They need a sequel answering the question of why everyone was a hoarder. Hashtag Evil Genius. If you want to share your thoughts on any upcoming episodes, make sure to find us on Twitter at Can't Make This Up, or on Facebook at You Can't Make This Up Netflix. Before we let you go, we've got one more treat for you. You know the segment; it's what you're watching. It's where we find out what the people who make these Netflix original series and films are watching on Netflix. This week, we asked Barbara and Trey for their new favorite shows.
3: How about everything? I love Flint Town. I love the confession (laughs) tapes. Um, Just watched the Ali Wong special for Mother's Day. That's what I wanted to do on Mother's Day (laughs) with my daughter. Um, Yeah, it's just uh, Netflix all the time.
2: Yeah, I I just watched um, Shot in the Dark. I watched uh, Wild Wild Country. Oh
3: yeah, obsessed over that,
2: which is fantastic. And I'm looking forward to watching Dark next.
0: And that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new series for you to add to your watch list. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps other people find it, and it also makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix, and our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Revada Vada. Thanks for listening.